0: How many of you, let me ask you this, how many of you um, were here for the entire book of Ecclesiastes that we did several years ago? Beginning to end. Two, three, Connor, beginning to end. The very beginning. I figured it was very few. I was thinking, you two, that's what I thought. All right. Ecclesiastes is a great book, guys. A great book. And it was one of my absolute favorite books to ever study, to preach through. And uh, so tonight, I get the joy of taking you through um, kind of a bird's eye view of Ecclesiastes. And if you know anything about the book, you know that Ecclesiastes uh, has gotten a bad rap uh, over the years. Some people look at it as kind of the uh, red-headed stepchild of the Bible, right? They don't, uh, they don't think that it belongs, and um, they think it's too pessimistic. They think it's something that should not be along with the other wisdom books, and they're wrong. Ecclesiastes is a fantastic book that is actually not pessimistic, it's very optimistic. And it became very apparent to me over those months that I studied through this book that one of the primary themes of the book of Ecclesiastes is enjoying life God's way. Now, vanity is certainly a major theme in the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity of life in a fallen world, and... Um, if you've looked over the themes, I think in high school you might go through the themes. I know that those of us who become elders memorize all the different themes of the scriptures and those things. Um, that that is the theme that we have is vanity of life in a fallen world. And it's, it's a fitting theme. But I think it needs a lot of explanation. And I think a better theme it has to do with enjoying life God's way. And we'll get to that in a minute. What I want to do tonight is I want to draw out that theme in several ways. I want us to have a right view of this book. It's always important, as we are highlighting through our Route 66 series, it's always important to get the big picture of a book. But if you lose sight of the big picture of this book, you can get really discouraged. The content of Ecclesiastes is very heavy, it's very thought-provoking, at times it's very unsettling to the soul, and that's one of the primary reasons why many have taken a pessimistic approach to this book, is because of those things that are found in it. As we walk through this, let me first start out by giving you a few necessary details concerning this book. And then I want you to note six realities that will help clarify the God-ordained theme of Ecclesiastes. The first detail that you need to know concerning this book is the author of the book. Though many think it's unknown, probably a lot of those are ones who think the book is also pessimistic, the book is clear in terms of who the author is. It is Solomon, the son of David. It says there in verse 1 of chapter 1, these are the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. It's very specific as to who wrote this book. And he probably wrote it, I say more than probably, most likely wrote this book at the end of his life. Think about Solomon for a minute, you don't think about... A man who you want to emulate in certain parts of his life. Maybe the beginning of his life. He started out super well. As he you know, came to the Lord when he was about to take the throne. And, and the Lord said, you know what? You ask me for whatever you want and I'll give it to you. It's an amazing thing. <laughs> and he could have asked for lots of things. And you've probably done that before, right? The three wishes of the genie. What are you going to ask for? Of course, more wishes. More wishes to keep that thing going, keep that train rolling down the tracks. But uh, he could have asked for all the wealth, he could have asked for all the importance, he could have asked for all the clout, and he asked for wisdom. He asked for wisdom, and God gave it to him, and he became known as the wisest man besides the Lord Jesus Christ to ever walk on the face of this earth. But there was a point in his life where it took a turn for the worst. As he got caught up in idolatry, he had a thirst for immorality, I think is probably one of the best ways to put it. And he had at seven hundred wives and 300 concubines, a thousand women that were part of this harem of the king, which was not something that God had prescribed, not something that God had ordained. And when you're reading about Solomon's life, the end of his life, it says that it was those wives who led his heart astray and he became an idolater and became a worshiper of those false gods. And there's a number of people who think that Solomon's life ended that way. That was, that was his legacy. He went down that road, but he never returned. I don't think that's true. I think at the end of his life, Solomon repented. And that's why we get the book of Ecclesiastes. Because he sits down and writes these words of wisdom, looking back on this life that he lived that started out so well and deterred so poorly because of the decisions he made. And he was able to then bring a lot of insight out of that. A lot of helpful things for us. That's the first thing you need to know is that Solomon is the author of this book. Some other ways that you know that that's true is, as you read through, it becomes clear that Things that are talked about in this book correspond with Solomon's life. One helpful commentator said that uh, Solomon's authorship can be asserted through these four categories. Wisdom, the wisdom that's talked about in Ecclesiastes 1.16 corresponds to 1 Kings 3.12. His works, all that he did because he did a lot of works. He was very well known throughout throughout the earth at that time. Ecclesiastes 2, 4 through 6 corresponds with 1 Kings 5, 1 Kings 7, 1 Kings 9. His wealth was certainly well known. Ecclesiastes 2, 7 through 9 corresponds with 1 Kings 10, 14 through 20. And then his words, his his wisdom. Ecclesiastes 12, 9, and 10 corresponds with 1 Kings 4, 32. Solomon is the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not some unknown guy. The second necessary detail you need to know is the definition of Ecclesiastes, or in Hebrew, the Koheleth. He's the preacher or the gatherer of the assembly. Koheth is, is the preacher or the gatherer. And so he gathered these words to give to the people, and he gathered the people together as one who was their shepherd. It's as if Pastor Solomon is is gathering those who read this book and saying to them, listen intently to this wisdom, understand how to process it, and apply it to your life. The third necessary detail you need to know is that there are a number of repeated words and phrases that influence the theme of this book. Let me just give you several of these words at the outset. The word good. Good occurs actually 52 times in this book. Words like wisdom or wise also occur 52 times. God appears 40 times. The word heart appears 40 times. Vanity or emptiness appears 38 times, which might be surprising, considering that's the theme that is most of the time given to this book. The word time is... It occurs 37 times. Trouble occurs 33 times. Evil occurs 30 times. Under the sun is a very common theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. It has 29 occurrences. The word live or life occurs 26 times. The word rejoice or joy occurs 17 times. The word give or gift occurs 12 times. And the words eat and drink occur six times in this book, and all of those key words and phrases influence the theme of this book. The fourth detail you need to know at the outset is that there have been many different interpretations of the theme of Ecclesiastes, as I said at the outset, and unfortunately, many of those interpretations have been pessimistic and therefore led the reader to have kind of an Eeyore mentality toward life. To actually view life as a burden rather than a gift. And that is unfortunate. As I began this study a few years ago now, I discovered that this book should lead us to being joyful people who enjoy this gift of life every day and not to be pessimists who dwell on the trials and disappointments that this life inevitably brings our way on this earth. Because we can all name troubles or trials or difficulties probably right off the top of our heads right now of things that could capture our attention. Things that cause us to focus on those things, things to think that life's a big bummer. That happens often. Let me give you the working theme of the book, and then, uh, then we'll support that theme with these six realities found in the book that clarify it for us. Here's the theme. And you've heard this from my mouth many times. You should know this theme. I shouldn't even have to tell you this theme, but I'm going to give it to you anyways. Enjoy this temporary, difficult life. With every ounce of your being, but do it God's way. Enjoy this temporary, difficult life with every ounce of your being, but do it God's way. As one commentator put it, he said, live without reserve, die without regret. One thing to note about this is that this is not... The philosophy mantra, carpe diem, or seize the day. but Rather, this is living with the understanding that life is a gift from the Creator, and He will judge the abuse of that gift. This is not live as you want, live how you want, do what you want. This is live according to What God has commanded, understanding that He will judge you for how you live. Six realities. Six realities that clarify this theme for us. Number one, we live in a fallen world of our own making. We live in a fallen world of our own making. When someone comes to this book, they have to understand this reality. Because as I said, they're going to read some hard things. They're going to study some difficult sayings that Solomon has. They're going to have to battle in their souls with some of the things that Solomon says in this book. And so they have to come to this book with the reality that we live in a fallen world of our own making. Fallenness exists. Sin exists. And we must exist in a world that has been affected by these things. And not only that, we ourselves are fallen. We ourselves are sinful. You have to understand this world of sin as you come to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you don't, it's going to be hard for you to get through. It's going to be hard for you to to understand. But when a person understands that, that this world isn't all cherries and coconuts, are those happy things? But rather it is full of difficulty that we have created because of our sinful decisions, it becomes a lot easier to understand why a lot of these things are said. As I mentioned, vanity is throughout this book. You can see that there, Ecclesiastes 1, 2. He begins, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Vanity, the word, is breath. The concept of vanity in the book of Ecclesiastes, the concept of vanity in, in wisdom literature in general, is that it is like a mist. It comes and it goes. It's very short-lived. Here today, gone tomorrow. Striving after the wind is another phrase that Solomon uses that has the same idea of vanity. And he uses this phrase over and over again because he was clear concerning the fact that this current life is temporary because of sin. It's why he uses it so often. He understood that this life that we are currently in right now is not going to last forever. This earth in its current state is not going to last forever. Us in our current state aren't going to last forever. It's it's temporary. A A few examples of Solomon's understanding of this reality Chapter 1, verse 16, I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I realized that this is also striving after the wind. Chapter 2, verse 11, Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind and there was no profit under the sun verse 17 of chapter 2 so i hated life for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after the wind chapter 4 verse 4 i have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry rivalry between a man and his neighbor this too is vanity and striving after the wind. Verse 16 of chapter 4. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even to the ones who will come after, who will come later, will not be happy with him. For this too is vanity and striving after the wind. Solomon got it. <laughs> there was no question in this man's mind. That sin has affected the world. Sin had affected his world in a major way. And you can just see as he's saying these things, you go through chapter and chapter and chapter by chapter, vanity and, and the striving after the wind, as he's going through that, you can picture him there at the end of his life saying, yep, temporary. Temporary. All that striving, temporary. It's gone. And we live in a fallen world now, and therefore things are going to be out of place. Things are going to be difficult. Things are going to be painful. Things are going to be discouraging. And we must attribute things not being as they are supposed to be to the reality of being in a fallen world that we caused by our rebellion to our Creator. Sin did not just come upon us. We sinned. We brought the calamity that this world is enduring. Solomon got that. And you have to get that if you're going to understand this book. The second reality you need to know. second reality is this. Every heart... Longs for satisfaction and fulfillment. Every heart longs for satisfaction and fulfillment. Turn to chapter 2 of the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon in this chapter kind of manifests this reality through his words. Listen to it. I said to myself, come now. I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself, and behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good is there for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly, for what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly, and light, as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, As is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, This too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man, as with the fool, and as much as in the coming days, all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This, too, is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and he, too, and he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with him, this too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and all his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is Vanity. Do you sense sense in those those three sections? This longing of the human heart. This man could get whatever he wanted. I, I think that's hard for us to grasp. I mean, I know how you are, because I know how I am. You're rolling down the street. And you see somebody think, if I just had a few more bucks, I would have that. Right? You don't like that. Maybe that's how you are at McDonald's, right? You just want... But the human heart longs for things. It longs for things and it longs for this, this fulfillment. And, and Solomon pictures that. He bought literally everything he could because he could buy everything, there was nothing that he couldn't get in his life. And you heard the refrain. From each of those sections, after he built those amazing things, says he enlarged his works and he collected silver and gold, the treasure of kings, he had everything you could want. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind and there was no profit. And then after he turned to wisdom, I hated my life because everything was futility and striving after the wind. Then he hated his labor. Why? Because all of this labor that he accomplished was now going to be given to another man. He was going to reap the benefits of all that labor. His heart longed to be satisfied. And so he did everything humanly possible. And he was the one man on this earth who could do it. And he gets to the end and he says, Not satisfied. In fact, Miserable. You understand this reality just as Solomon did. You want to be fulfilled in this life. I want to be fulfilled in this life. We all know what happens to those who who aren't fulfilled in this life. There's so many things that people search for, so many ways that people search to find fulfillment, whether it's through accomplishments and and achievements, whether it's through satisfying the flesh, whether it's through seeking power and fame. These are all things Solomon did. When that's your goal and that's what you're doing to find fulfillment in this life, It's nothing more than a vain idol that is going to prove fruitless, vain, and temporary. It's going to leave you with a worse longing than you had at the beginning. As human beings created in the image of God, you and I were not created to be satisfied by created things. We were created to be satisfied by the creator himself. And there's nothing, there's nothing else that will. And Solomon is the prime example of that reality. He could literally get anything he wanted. Anything he wanted. He wanted, and it was all vain. That idolatry will leave you longing even more for the satisfaction that only God can give. And unfortunately, we are depraved individuals. (laughs) And so when you are drawn to idolatrous things, when when you are seeking to have your life satisfied with the things of this life, that idolatry is going to destroy you. It's going to destroy you. Every heart longs for satisfaction and fulfillment. You need to understand that to understand the theme of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Number three, life is brief. Life is brief. Ecclesiastes 3, look at verse 18. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men, and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast. All is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from the dust, and all return to dust. Chapter 5, verse 15. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will, will he die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Chapter 9, verse 3. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. There is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. Forever is joined with the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. From the moment you are born, you are dying. Encouragement 101, right there. You are born into this earth. You begin the dying process. The body begins the process of decay for the rest of your life until you decay away. Actually, you get to the end of Ecclesiastes in chapter 11, and he gives these metaphors, I believe are metaphors, of the human body falling apart because that's what happens. Because we go back to the reality number one. This world is corrupt. We're corrupted by sin. Life is brief. We need to remember that. We need to remember what James 4 says. It says, yet yeah, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. You don't know how many years you are given on this earth. None of us does. None of us have been getting, been given that information. You didn't get that certificate when you left the hospital. Written down, here's your day of birth, and here's your day of death. We don't know. We know that we're alive right now. And we need to understand that that's God's gift. And along with it being God's gift, we need to understand that it matters how you live. It matters what you do now. It matters how you live tonight. It matters how you think. It matters how you speak to other people. It matters what you do with your time. It matters. Because you go through this book and you realize that life is this wonderful gift from God. But it's corrupt. It leaves leaves you longing for more if you go after things in this life. It's brief. You could die at any minute. And so with the time that you have with the people and the relationships that God puts in your life, Ecclesiastes teaches us that it matters. And the most important thing that matters is what you do with Jesus Christ. You either know Him And love him and worship him and are one day going to be with him or you reject him. And one day when you die, you will then die again eternally in hell. It matters. You don't just exist for no reason. You don't exist to your own glory. You don't exist for your own purposes. It matters how you live because you exist for God. He's put you on this earth. And you don't know how long, because the reality is, life is brief. Number four. God is completely sovereign. God is completely sovereign. Back to chapter three. This famous poem that's been turned into a song. Verse one. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I've seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. This poem takes shape to show us the reality that God is sovereign. There's a time for all of these different things in life. He has an ordained plan that is working out. And that that plan will be accomplished through His ordained means. And these things are part of that. All part of the life cycle, all part of the life process that God has ordained to be. He is sovereign over everything. Chapter 7, verse 13. Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. All things come from God. Why does that help us? It helps us because we are not to become overwhelmed with the issues of life in this world because we believe that God is sovereignly in control of all things, both good and bad, As Solomon did. Therefore, the biggest and worst thing that happens on this planet, we don't get overwhelmed by that. Why? Because God is in charge. How does that help us? Well, it helps us because now we can enjoy life fully with every ounce of our being, regardless of circumstances. Why? Because God is sovereign. But He's not just sovereign, God is good. He's good. You read through the Bible and you see blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing extended from God to his creation. Why? Because he's good. Then you get in to the New Testament realizing that you belong to God if you're a child of God, if you've come to him through Christ. And you get to a place like Romans 8 where it says that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So you have this, this sovereign God who's in charge of everything. There's nothing that's out from under his control. The, the devil is not competing against God with the same kind of sovereignty that God has, right? I think it was Martin Luther. He said, The devil is God's devil, right? God uses whatever he needs to use, whatever he has determined to use, to accomplish his purposes, to bring glory to himself. And so we find comfort in that. We then look at our life and say, okay, this life is a gift. This day is a gift. This time is a gift. This relationship is a gift. And so I'm going to live in a way that pleases the Lord. I'm going to give it all I've got. I'm going to enjoy all of it because God is sovereign over this, and He's lovingly given this to me. I don't have to fret. I don't have to fret about this circumstance. I don't have to fret about this situation that's going on. I don't have to. I can enjoy the life that God has given me because He's sovereign and He's good and He's gracious. Solomon understood that, he understood God's sovereignty number 5 It is possible for life in a fallen world to be enjoyed. It is possible for life in a fallen world to be enjoyed. Earlier I read almost all of Ecclesiastes 2 and did not read the end. Let me read the end verse 24. I mean this is after he has searched for satisfaction And he's come up longing for satisfaction because this life doesn't satisfy. Verse 24, this is his conclusion. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting, so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. It's to his vanity and striving after the wind. He says, you have this life, you have your labors, you have your toils. Enjoy the fruit of those things. Enjoy your life, but, but don't miss verse 25. For who can eat and have enjoyment without Him? This is the theme. Enjoy life with every ounce of your being, but do it God's way. You can't. What he's saying is you cannot enjoy this life without Him. And what he is saying is that you can enjoy life to the fullest, most possible extent that it can be enjoyed if you do it his way. That's a glorious theme. Ecclesiastes 3. After he talks about God's sovereignty over life and the process of life that takes place. Verse 11. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from beginning to end. I know there is nothing better than for them to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. Then he says in verse 14, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take away from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. That which has been already and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun in the place of justice there is wickedness, in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time, for every matter and every deed. Is there? Listen, you have the first part of that, eleven through thirteen, where he talks about enjoying life. Again, laboring with your hands is nothing better than for them to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. And he says in verse fourteen, the end that men should fear him. You enjoy life with every ounce of your being but you do it God's way. We are not to dwell on the fallenness of our world and the issues that fallenness creates for us in our lives, but rather we are given each day as a gift and must focus on the task at hand and the joy that God has built into doing the things that He has given us to do on this earth. It is only possible to enjoy life because of God. And we are commanded to enjoy the life that He has given to us. We are not to sulk in our sorrows. We are not to envy others. We are not to live with the grass is greener mentality. Friends, God's gifts are sufficient. Why? Because God, because God Himself is sufficient. God is the giver of all good gifts. Over and over in this book, Solomon gives God the glory for everything that is good. We know from James 1.17 that every temptation we encounter to find satisfaction in this life is something of our making, something of our doing. But every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. It is possible to enjoy life in this fallen world. It's because of God. He must be our ultimate, complete, and total satisfaction. And that's what... Solomon drives home in this book. We are commanded to enjoy the mundane. We are commanded to enjoy the hard things to do. And those things are achievable because of God. We don't have to have a downer approach to life. In fact, it's not how we were created to live, regardless of all the problems, regardless of all the issues that we have. God has said, enjoy this life. It is a gift. And you know what's great? What's great? We are called to do that, and we do that, and it's hard. And don't get me wrong. Sometimes enjoying this life is hard. Sometimes seeing this life as a gift is hard. I'm not saying that's not true. That is true. What I am saying is that it is a gift, and we're called to enjoy it. And the reality is, one day, we will perfectly enjoy life. When Christ returns, we will be fully satisfied at the consummation of all things because of Christ's coming back. And so in those days, when you're trying to consider the day that you're in as a gift, when you're trying to rejoice because the Bible tells you to rejoice, When you're trying to look at the circumstances you have that are going on and and say, yep, these are good and I need to enjoy these, even though they're not fun. I still need to enjoy the day, enjoy the life that God has given to me. When those days are happening, when it's difficult, remember that this life is not all there is. Remember the reality that we looked at already, that life is brief. And that one day for the Christian, life is eternal and it's perfect. And there will be perfect enjoyment without any conflict, without any corruption of sin to cause it to be difficult. Last one, number six. God must be feared. God must be feared. We'll just look at one verse, probably the most famous verse in the book of Ecclesiastes, verse 13 of chapter 12. Solomon gets to the end and he says this the conclusion. When all has been heard is this, fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person. This is the only way. Don't miss this. This is the only way that you and I are able to enjoy life is if we fear God. We live life in the fear of God, loving Him, worshiping Him, Reverencing him, and that manifests itself in obedience and submission. You live a life like that, you're able to enjoy life regardless of circumstances. Why do we fear God? Verse 14 For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. God will bring every act to judgment. This is the reality of life, friends. God is the creator. And God is the judge. And so we fear him because of those two reasons. And when we fear him, we can enjoy this life for everything it's worth because we're doing it his way. Live without reserve. Die without regret. I think that's good. Ecclesiastes is not a license to live licentiously, to embrace worldly pleasure, but rather it is an invitation to enjoy this temporary, vain life fully, experiencing God's gift, God's. four reasons why we need Ecclesiastes they're fast four I'm just going to tell tell them to you one because it correctly shapes my perspective on God two because it correctly shapes my perspective on life three because it correctly shapes my perspective on sin Four, because it shows me how to enjoy this temporary vain life in the fullest sense possible. Because it correctly shapes my perspective on God. Because it correctly shapes my perspective on life. Because it correctly shapes my perspective on sin. Because it shows me how to enjoy this temporary vain life in the fullest sense possible. That's why we need Ecclesiastes. If I were you, I would go home and read it. It's good. And the part you don't quite understand, go back and find one of the messages where we preach on it. That'll help. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this book. What a gift it is. Maybe one of the greatest reasons it's such a gift is because it's so so raw. Things are so descriptive in this book. But yet, Father, you're so clear. And you used your servant, Solomon, who by no means lived a perfect life in any way, shape, or form. But a man, at the end of his life, you brought to repentance. Who was able to look back and Provide us with this treasure so that we don't do the same thing Solomon did, but rather we see this life as a gift. We don't seek to find our satisfaction in it. We just seek to enjoy what you've given to us in it because we love you, we worship you, we fear you. Lord, thank you for Your goodness, in Christ's name, amen.